You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Here's something you may not know about me, because when would this come up on my sex and relationship advice podcast? And it's not really something I bring up at random, because boy, does it date me. Anyway, I was living in West Berlin when the Berlin Wall fell in November of 1989. I was very young. It was an amazing time to be alive and to be alive in Berlin, way back when America stood for tearing down walls, not erecting them. And a few weeks later, after reading about the street protests in Czechoslovakia, I got on a train to Prague with my then-boyfriend, and we were there when the communist totalitarian government of Czechoslovakia fell. An amazing time to be alive and to be in Wenceslas Square. And a few weeks after that, we decided to go to Romania, which still had a brutal Stalinist dictator, and we were going to go there for Christmas. But at the last moment, we decided that it was just too fucking cold. We'd been freezing our asses off in Berlin and in the streets of Prague, and we needed a break. Too cold. Too cold to be in Bucharest at Christmas where there wasn't much food or heat. So we weren't in Romania when the Stalinist government fell over Christmas in 1989. And that may have been a good thing. Unlike the fall of the Berlin Wall and like the Velvet Revolution where no shots were fired and no blood was spilled, shots were fired and people died in Bucharest and tourists were rounded up by the secret police and loaded onto cattle cars and shipped out of the country because the dictator of Romania didn't want any foreign witnesses for the bloodbath he was planning. This isn't a random trip down memory lane. I promise Danpa is not having a stroke. I was thinking about Romania and its Stalinist dictator, Nikolai Ceausescu, this morning because of Ohio and Georgia and Missouri and, in particular, Alabama. Basically all the states where Republicans, Republican men and Republican women, are attempting to outlaw abortion. Because one of the things the world learned about Ceausescu's Romania after the fall of Ceausescu's dictatorship is what happens to a society, not just after freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, religious freedom, and all other freedoms are suppressed or obliterated, but what happens to a society after a woman's freedom to control her own body is obliterated. Ceausescu banned abortion and contraception in 1966 to grow Romania. Banning abortion and making it harder for women to access contraception in part by defining many forms of contraception as abortion. Ceausescu's Romania, 50 years ago, Trump's GOP today. I was reading Foreign Policy magazine. Yes, I don't just read sex journals and watch very disappointing Game of Thrones season finales. Sometimes I read Foreign Policy magazine. They call Romania under Ceausescu a real-life test case of what happens when a country outlaws abortion entirely. And the results, foreign policy states, were devastating. More than 10,000 Romanian women are known to have died as a result of botched or self-administered abortions. But the real number is believed to be much, much higher. Since people were afraid to report, the real reason a woman showed up at a hospital bleeding from internal injuries. If she survived, she could go to prison. And so could anyone who helped her and her family. Maternal mortality skyrocketed. Violence against women because they were so vulnerable skyrocketed in Romania. And by 1989, 200,000 unwanted children were being housed in appalling Romanian orphanages where they were starved, neglected, and sexually abused. 
That's what happens when a country outlaws abortion entirely. Women die. It seems we've forgotten the lessons of Ceausescu's Romania. How else to explain that Alabama's proposed abortion ban is worse, more restrictive, more severe than even Ceausescu's abortion ban? Romania, under Ceausescu, its Stalinist dictator, allowed a woman to get an abortion in the case of rape or incest or serious genetic deformity. The law passed in Alabama does not allow for an exception in any of those cases. Of course, the wealthy in Romania, the communist elite, they could still get abortions. They also had access to contraception smuggled in from the West. So it was the poor who suffered. The same will happen here. The same will happen in Alabama if Republicans succeed in overturning Roe and banning abortion. The wealthy, the well-off, the mostly white will be able to travel to states where abortion is legal, while women in Alabama who have miscarriages will have their bodies treated like crime scenes, just like the bodies of women in Romania were. I'm old enough to remember when Republicans used to hate communism. They opposed the state seizing control of the means of production. But when it comes to the state seizing control of the means of reproduction... Yeah, they're all a bunch of fucking Stalinists. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads, actress Maddie Corman, star of Accidentally Brave, joins me for a conversation about what happens or what happened to her, what she experienced when her husband was arrested for possessing child pornography. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. This is a 38-year-old male from the Midwest. Uh, I have been married for eight years and have one daughter, and I'm getting a divorce. I am now accepting my life as a gay man, and I'm going to live that way. I've known since I was probably 14, uh, living in the Midwest, religion, and so forth. I have did not accept it always, but now I am. I met a guy, we've known each other for about five months. I am crazy about him. Uh, He is very nice to me. Uh, We have a good time together. Uh, We enjoy each other's company. However, he travels a lot. He is out of the state and soon he'll be moving to Canada and he's not likely to come back to the Midwest uh, because of his work. I have expressed to him that I would gladly join him, but at some point, but yes, I have to work through this marriage piece, and for him, that seems a little bit complicated. So he has a hard time seeing our future together because he has a hard time understanding what's happening in the present. Um, Also, because of that, when we get together, we have a lot of deep conversations, uh, which he doesn't always enjoy. And he sees me as someone who has these deep conversations. It's not totally his personality. And so, again, he has a hard time with our future. The question is, how do I perceive this relationship? Totally crazy about him. And I wanted to work, but I just need to know how to make it work. You say you want it to work. You ask, how do I make this work? And I want to ask you to define work. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by this relationship working out for you. Usually what people mean is the relationship is forever until death do you part. That's what people mean by the relationship worked out. It's a little weird 
that we define success for relationships so narrowly. Relationships are the only thing that if two people get out of it alive, we consider it a failure. We don't think that way about tandem bicycles, cars, airplanes, dinner reservations, anything else. But with relationships, it only worked out if you're together for, well, not forever because no one is immortal, together until one of you was at the funeral home signing the papers to have the other of you embalmed. And then it was a success. That relationship worked out. Well, a relationship can end. It can end at five months. It can end at 10 years. It can end at 20 years and have been a success. A relationship can end and it can still work out. If what you come away with from that relationship is maybe a friendship, maybe a lifelong contact, maybe occasional fuck buddy, and having learned something about yourself, having grown emotionally, sexually, socially, you're a 38-year-old man. You just came out of the closet. You are finally living your truth. And when you come out, it's almost as if your emotional clock gets set to 15 again, however old you are. If you come out at 15, you're 15 years old. If you come out at 25 and you're having your first relationship where you are capable of falling in love with someone romantically and you're attracted to them sexually, it's as if you're 15. Come out at 35. It's as if you're 15. And those relationships when you're 15, new love, first love, actual love, romantic and sexual love, those are very intensely felt and we invest in them and we can be devastated when they end. No one's heart breaks like the 15-year-old's heart breaks, however old that 15-year-old might be. So you need to try to keep this relationship in perspective, where you are right now, how intensely you're feeling things, how long you waited to have this kind of connection with a man. You may be investing too much in this relationship. You may be keeping more up on it than it can bear. And so I would encourage you to loosen your grip and to reason with yourself, the 38-year-old man that you are, to reason with the 15-year-old just-out gay kid deep inside you. And tell yourself, this could work out. This could be a successful relationship even if it doesn't last forever. Even if it ends when he moves away to Canada. Even if circumstance is what pulls us apart and not a desire to stop seeing each other. Because you have the divorce and you also have this child. Not just the marriage piece that you have to resolve. It's the child parenting. And that's not something you're ever going to resolve. You're going to have to be present in your child's life. That may keep you where you are at least for another decade and change. It may ultimately be in your long-term best interests to be single and divorcing and single and co-parenting and dating locally and remembering this man and everything he did for you and to you fondly. And maybe getting together when you can, maybe seeing if the LDR thing might work out and also reminding yourself that the intensity of your feelings right now for this man it may be about who this man is. It's likelier to be about the man you are and the place you are in your life right now. So take a deep breath and tell yourself, if you're together with this guy in five years, worked out. If you're with somebody else five years from now and this guy is a friend, and if not a friend, not a presence in your life, someone you remember fondly and are grateful for having had in your life, then that relationship worked out too. Hi, Dan. I'm dating a guy now, and he used to be 
or he is an addict and he used to be a sex addict and he's dated multiple people, like hundreds of people. And now we have a very healthy relationship and things are different. Um, he does self-work and our relationship is definitely different, but these girls are like creeping into from the past or like coming back into our lives, like messaging him on Instagram and text and reaching out and wanting to talk and saying really inappropriate stuff, telling him he can't have a good relationship. And these messages mean nothing to him, but they mean a lot to me. So I'm having a hard time handling it. And I would like your advice with this. If they mean nothing to him, these messages, maybe he should get a new fucking phone number. So all of these women who are creeping out of the past and direct messaging him because they want the D don't have his current phone number anymore and can't find him. Of course, then they could always DM him on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all the other ways in which we make ourselves vulnerable to the people from our pasts. Look, you are in love with a guy who says he was a sex addict. I don't think sex addiction is a thing. Some people have a lot of sex. Some people have a lot of sex partners. We live in a sex negative culture. And often we apply that sex addict label to anyone who's having more sex than we are. And while it's true that some people will abuse sex, that doesn't come from a place of chemical addiction. They're not physically addicted to sex. They are just seeking sex and maybe seeking it for the wrong reasons. But sometimes people have a lot of sex, have a lot of sex partners for the right reasons. They have a really high libido and they enjoy variety. But we pathologize that because the culture and our religions and our families are much more comfortable if we have sex with one person and one person at a time and preferably one person only and forever. And that's not the way most people's sexualities actually work. And the pressure of having to fit into that mold, one person, one person at a time, preferably one person forever – that can cause people to really you know, burst at the seams a little bit and act out sexually and seek more sex and have more sex partners than logistically or health-wise or reasonably that they can handle. And it isn't about a sex addiction. It's about the pressure to conform and then pushing back against that in perhaps an unhealthy way. Anyway, I'm deep in the sex addict tangent. What do you do about these messages? He changes his phone number. He blocks people he doesn't want to hear from anymore. And you have to regard his past as a price of admission you're willing to pay to be with him, rolling with his past, handling his past. Your partner had many, many, many sex partners and he made himself available to them on a moment's notice. And it's going to take time for all of these people who are used to sending him a message and then 20 minutes later having his D to get it through their heads that he ain't playing like that anymore. So these will drop off over time. But in the short run, you're just going to have to Put up with it. Hi, Dan, Nancy, Tech Savvy at Rescue. This is a 24 year old bi woman calling from the West Coast, but none of that really matters because everybody poops. So, bit of a situation today with my boyfriend of six years. We live together and um, he got to the bathroom for first this morning, which is pretty typical. Um, takes his time on the toilet and he's on his phone, takes a little longer. Um, and he has this whole routine that he likes to go through. While I am waiting in bed because I have never had to poop so bad in my entire life. So last night we had this huge pasta dinner and then I honestly, I had dreams about like pooping myself in front of people. Like I literally had to shit so bad all night. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and so I texted him from bed to be sweet and say, Hey, I got to poop. Are you almost done? And, um, he was like, yeah, I'm working on it, whatever. A couple minutes go by. I get up and go into the bathroom because he's now just kind of doing his hair. And 
I started to be a little bit naggy because I've literally never had to shit this bad my whole life. So he doesn't like the nagginess. Yeah, I asked him to please just kind of get his stuff out because I wanted privacy to do this. And if maybe he could just do his hair in a different room because there's nowhere else that I can shit. So he slowly, slowly starts doing that. And I'm still, I'm getting a little bit frantic at this point. Like it's about to happen. Didn't really feel like pooping in front of someone today. And um, he blew up at me and said that all I do is nag and I can't nag to get what I want. It's not, I'm not the center of the universe. And like he was leaving, blah, blah, blah. So my question is, I understand it's not cool to nag, but is nagging permissible when you're literally going to shit yourself? It was an emergency. You were going to shit your pants or shit on the floor or shit in front of him. And you didn't want to do that. And you communicated to him the urgency of the moment. And what you got back from him was, you nag at me all the time. That could be true. I haven't seen the Big Brother style unedited feed from your apartment. So I couldn't say how it is that you treat him when you don't have to shit your pants, when it isn't an emergency. It is possible that you do nag him all the time and that he couldn't distinguish the urgency of this moment from any other moment because you use the same tone or perhaps you use the same language when you're communicating to him about everything else. That said, if I had to issue a ruling, who was the jerk in this moment? Who was the asshole at that moment in that bathroom? Him. He was totally the asshole. That was totally a jerk-ass move. And he should have gotten the fuck out of the bathroom. When two people are sharing a living space and there's only one toilet and somebody's got to take a crap and they can't hold it, you got to get the fuck out. So I think you should have a conversation with him. Use your words. You should talk to him and say, look, that was a total asshole move on your part. It was an emergency. I had to shit. I was going to shit my pants or shit on the floor. And I had to make that clear to you in the moment. It wasn't a case where I could just pinch it off and give you your time. I had to get you out of the toilet. It wasn't a case where I could just pinch it off and and give you your time. So I think you owe me an apology for how you reacted in that moment. And once I have that apology, we can have a conversation about the nagging. You suggested that it wasn't just this moment in the bathroom where I was kind of insistent and imploring perhaps with a tone in my voice, you suggested, you stated that I do this all the time. And if that's true, maybe that's something that we need to talk about. Maybe that's something I was unaware of and you have now made me conscious of and we can work on that together. So if I'm communicating with you about finding your jacket so we can get to the movie or socks on the floor or something else in the same urgent emergency, emergency, emergency tones, yeah, that's a problem because then when it's an actual emergency, you won't be able to tell the difference. And this was a case where it was an actual emergency and you're suggesting to me you couldn't tell the difference. So let's talk about that. Hi, Dan. I was having PIV intercourse with a male lover of mine when the condom slipped off and was lodged inside of me. Happens all the time. Not a problem. The dude said, oh, condom came off. Okay, all right. I assumed he pulled it out because he continued to have intercourse with me, put on another condom, continued to fuck me, uh, wrapped up the evening and left the house. Four days later, I'm in the bathroom going pee and out pops a condom. I was utterly pissed. How in God's creation could somebody leave a piece of plastic inside of me and not let me know? And... To further exacerbate the situation, the four days that passed between the PIV intercourse and the 
moment in which the condom popped out, I had terrible inflammation, itchiness. I had to call my doctor. I had to get um, medicine prescribed to me. It was incredibly uncomfortable. I had to go to the go to the uh, Kaiser. You know how difficult that is. So it was a real pain in my not ass, but the other hole. When I confronted him through text, very politely, I mentioned, oh, hey, fellow, guess what? I had a pretty interesting situation, kind of gross. Uh, condom popped out. And, you know, in the future, could you maybe explicitly let me know that you did not take the condom out? Or maybe I should explicitly ask you, have you taken the condom out? His response was glib, and he kind of washed it away. Um, when um, a few weeks later, he was probing around for more sex, and I was not interested to have sex with him anymore, he responded that I was being harsh. And I I don't think that's true. I don't think I'm being harsh. So there was alcohol and marijuana involved, and he attributed his lack of follow-through to his inebriation, but I don't think that's a good enough excuse. So please, help me out. Who is responsible to get the condom out of the body, the person wearing the condom, or the person who can't even feel it inside them and only heard you mention that the condom came off? Whose responsibility? I didn't, I didn't even know I was supposed to dig in there and get it out. I sure would have had I known it was still in there. Really? You need me to tell you that you're in the right here and he's in the wrong? Okay, I'll do that. You're absolutely 100,000% in the right. He is utterly 100,000 billion negative percent in the wrong. I'm a little disturbed though. I want to jump back to what you said at the top of the call. The condom slipped off. He said it slipped off and you were like, hey, that's no big deal. Happens all the time, not a problem. That's a problem when the condom slips off. That is a thing that can happen. Condoms do sometimes slip off. They do sometimes break. Condoms have failure rates. If it's happening all the time, somebody's doing something wrong. And since you're the common denominator there in all these times where this has happened, maybe it's you or maybe you're pulling the short straws and you're getting a lot of inept guys. I would direct you though to Planned Parenthood's website where you can read a long post about the proper and correct usage of condoms. Used correctly, condoms have a 98% effective rate. They're 98% effective at preventing pregnancy. But in reality, they're only roughly 85% effective because people don't always use them properly. They're using condoms that are the wrong size. They're not putting them on correctly. So since you were intimately involved when that condom is applied, I would direct you to Planned Parenthood's website so that you can monitor the guy as he's putting the condom on to make sure he's doing it right. And as someone who's getting fucked a lot by guys wearing condoms, the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic – my pro tip from me to everybody else out there who's getting fucked by somebody wearing a condom, check for it every once in a while. That doesn't mean you have to stop and jump off and turn on a flashlight. That can just mean let your hand drift down and feel the dick and make sure you can still feel that condom there or do a sight check and make sure that condom's there. It was a life and death thing. The stakes were life and death in 1988, 1990, 1992, 93, 94, 95. And so it was a huge problem if a condom broke or slipped off. It's a problem still, though, for you. Unplanned pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections, it is a problem. And if it's happening all the time, you're going to want to address that. But yeah, this guy who stopped and said the condom slipped off and then applied was too drunk, he says, too high to 
retrieved the condom to let you know the condom was still up in there, but not too drunk or high to put on another condom, not too drunk or high to lose his erection, put on another condom and then fucked the loose condom further up into your twat. Yeah, fuck him. He's an asshole and an idiot. And he's no one you should ever let within a hundred yards of your pussy ever again. That is not too harsh. That's justice. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old queer femme living in the Southwest. I just moved to a new city and trying to figure out work, so I posted an ad about myself on Craigslist, and someone responded who has a foot fetish. So what it's looking like is that I'm going to meet up with this person who's in their 60s and just walk around with them in a public place for an hour to hour and a half and engage in shoe play. Sent me a couple videos of what that looks like, so I feel like I have that covered. But I'm mainly wondering what questions I should be asking before meeting up with this person, and yeah, any other advice you have to make sure that the power dynamic is balanced and that I'm safe and doing this properly. You should be asking him for his real name. You should make sure that you have his actual phone number. And you should let him know that you're sharing that real name and real phone number with a friend and that someone knows where you are when you're with him and what you're doing when you're with him. And you're going to check in with that person when you're done so they know to raise the alarm if they don't hear from you. That's the standard issue advice that's given to people who are going to be alone with some stranger somewhere. They're going to go to somebody's house. They want to try bondage. They're going to go make themselves vulnerable in some other way. Make sure someone knows who you are, where you're with. I think the risks here are much, much lower since you're going to be in a public place. That said, people have been assaulted by people in public places. Make sure you're in a very public place. Maybe enough privacy opportunities where whatever it is that's in these videos that he wants to do, you're able to do subtly and without causing a scandal or drawing unwanted attention to yourself or involving others who don't want to be involved in his kink, in his kink. But this sounds pretty low risk. And it sounds kind of like maybe even a fun sexual adventure, maybe even a bit of a mitzvah. Here's this 60 something guy with a foot fetish and you're going to indulge him in a way where you benefit, he benefits. No one has to take any unreasonable risks. Everybody's safe. No one's harmed. I knew a guy in Chicago a long time ago whose kink was basically taking hot young guys out. Not me. I didn't know him in this way, but taking hot young guys out and buying them shoes particular kinds of shoes, trainers, sort of fetishy looking, particular kinds of shoes, sporty shoes, trainers, Adidas, Nike. And he would take them out and he would buy them shoes. It's all he wanted to do was watch them try on the shoes, see their feet, know that they were going home with the shoes that he bought them. And it turned him out. He'd go home and beat off about it. And he was a perfectly lovely person who never did anybody any harm. Sometimes we fear fetishists out of all proportion to the risks that they present. So I think you can do this. I think you can do it safely. Oh, the last bit of advice, real name, real phone number, somebody knows where you are, trust your gut. If you meet up with him and he gives you the creeps, not, oh, his fetish is creepy and so that's a little creepy, you want to control for that. But if he does anything that raises a red flag that makes you feel uncomfortable, bail. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old gay man living in a large Midwest city for the last year and a half, I've been hooking up with a 25-year-old gay male every couple months. We've had great chemistry, and I've been crushing on this guy pretty hard since the beginning. I've been interested in something more. Recently, we started to spend more time outside of the bedroom. We've gone out to dinner. He's introduced me to his friends, and he started to open up to me. 
He recently told me that since he was 17, he's been a part-time escort. He has a couple of regular clients he meets up with and will also meet up with guys from Grinder and Growler. And the last month, he told me he's been with five different guys. He told me that it's easy money and the guys he meets up with are guys he would have had sex with even if they didn't pay him. He also told me that I'm the first person he's ever told. None of his friends or family members know. I'm really confused by this situation. I really like this guy, but him being an escort may be a deal breaker. I'm a believer that sex work should be legal and there's nothing wrong with what he's doing. But honestly, a part of me is looking down on him for being an escort. I think a part of me wants to quote unquote fix him. I don't want to think like that, but it's in the back of my mind. My other major concern is STIs. Majority of the time, he's not using a condom with his clients because guys will pay more. He regularly gets tested, and I've been talking to him about using protection, but I'm concerned about his health and mine. And I guess my question is, what do I do? Am I overreacting? Am I overanalyzing? Should I just see where things go? I don't want the first guy he tells about his sex work to reject him because of it. I need some objective advice. I know my judgment is being clouded with the fact that he's a really sweet, nice guy that I really like on top of us having the best sex of our life. It's not necessarily about the sex work. It's about the unprotected sex, which puts you at risk of all the other STIs out there, assuming he's on prep. I hope he's on prep. If he's not on prep, you should blow up at him about getting on prep if he's having unprotected sex with clients. You're his partner and you're his regular sex partner and he's having unprotected sex with five or so different men roughly a month, that puts you at risk. Whether those men are paying him or not, that puts you at risk. And it's a risk that credit to him, he's informed you so you can now make an informed choice as you get more involved with him about whether you want to continue in this relationship or have unprotected sex with him yourself in the context of your relationship. So kudos to him, but that may not be a risk you're comfortable with. And if he were a hot, single, 25-year-old gay man in New York City or Chicago or San Francisco or Portland or Seattle or Dallas or Atlanta or New Orleans, he would probably be having roughly five sex partners a month because it's easy for hot 25-year-old gay men with access to the internet to have that many sex partners. It was easy for hot 25-year-old gay men to have that many sex partners a month before the internet and Growler and Scruff and Grinder came along. So separate these two issues. The fact that he's being compensated for having sex with people that he wants to have sex with is separate from the risks he's running with the people he's having sex with. Don't shame him for the sex work that he's doing. Praise him for his honesty and communicate to him your boundaries, your concerns, your limits. You have a right to take your own health and safety into account when you're deciding whether or not you want to pursue this relationship any further. And even if you don't feel comfortable having sex with him in the future, you can still be his friend. As long as you're clear with him that this isn't about shaming him for doing sex work. And this isn't about penalizing him for having the decency to be honest with you about the other people he's sleeping with. If he walks away from that conversation and wants to pin it on the sex work and not the fact that it's unprotected sex that he's having with others, compensated or not, you can't control that. And that's on him. Hi, Dan. 30-year-old straight male here. I recently went through a really rough breakup and got my heart broken pretty bad. In an effort to stay sane and in an attempt to heal, I've been doing a lot of hot yoga and Pilates, mainly to focus on being mindful, healthy, and staying fit. 
my strategy for dealing with heartbreak is to work to get hotter and fitter and focus on making myself a better and more confident person in general. I'm experienced at yoga, so being a member at a yoga studio isn't a new experience for me. I will quickly note that I will never be the dude who joins a yoga studio to try and meet women. I take my practice seriously, gotten me into really good shape, and it's essential for me in maintaining my mental health as well as my physical fitness. I will say, though, that I'm a pretty good-looking dude, I'm in great shape, and I've never really had trouble in that department. So as I begin to feel a little bit more like myself these days and maybe start to think about dating again, it's hard to ignore the fact that the studio I go to is fucking full of insanely hot women. The ratio of men to women is kind of ridiculous. I'll often be the only dude in a studio class full of like 30 women in sports bras and yoga pants. It's hot yoga, so we generally practice in very little clothing. I usually wear a small pair of athletic shorts and go shirtless. I sweat a ton. The energy flying around the studio during a class can be really intense. Hot, exciting, sweaty, flirtatious, sensual, even sometimes sexual. Anyway, I'm wondering if you might pose my question to your female listeners. Is there a tasteful or appropriate way to approach someone who I see regularly but never speak to at my yoga studio? As women, do you tend to enjoy the eye candy in a hot yoga class the same way guys do? The energy and vibe. Kind of sexy, right? Or am I making that up in my head in a typically male way? I understand that a yoga studio is kind of a sacred space, and I want to respect that it's probably a place where women in particular come to get away from all the other bullshit of men hitting on them all the time out in the world. So I barely talk to anyone there because I don't really want to bother anybody. I'm wondering if there's a middle ground and just what the female perspective is on this. Happy to punt this one to all my female listeners out there who do yoga. Is there a way for a man in your class to respectfully approach you that you would welcome? Are you trying not to think about it? Or are you tapping into those sexy vibes too? What do you say, female yoga practitioners? I will say, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yeah, there is a way to approach someone from your yoga class later, somewhere else. Get out of the house, go places. If you see someone from your yoga class, you have the perfect opportunity to initiate a conversation at a time that they are not half-dressed or sweaty or zonked out of it from all the hot yoga they just did or changing. And you go up to them in the bar, you go up to them in the restaurant and say, hey, I think we're in a yoga class together. And you establish a rapport. You're telegraphing at that moment that this isn't something you would do at yoga class. So you're letting them know that you are not a jerk, but you're also letting them know that you're a human being out there in the world and you might be interested in getting to know them better. If yoga class is something you have in common with someone and you run into them somewhere that ain't yoga class, strike up a conversation and let her lead. If she shuts you down, go the fuck away. If she opens up to you and engages, keep engaging, keep opening up and then say hey to her the next time you see her at yoga and maybe you'll get to the point of swapping phone numbers and hanging out sometime. And while I don't do yoga myself, from my own personal experience as a regular gym goer, there's a big difference between the guy who walks up to you in the locker room and tries to strike up a conversation or even in the gym and tries to strike up a conversation and the guy you run into in a coffee shop or a bar who says, hey, I think we go to the same gym. The former, not so into those guys. The latter, fucked each and every one of them. Hey, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old female, um, heterosexual from the southern United States, and I've been dating this man for just shy of a year. Um, I moved in with him 
about six, seven months in, and things were going great. Um, I really thought that this, I mean, he could be the one. And a couple weeks ago, he told me, after having sex with me for the past eight months, almost every day, that now, because he's going to church, he has decided that premarital sex is wrong, and he does not believe that we should be having any kind or any form of sex until we get married. And I, you know, I respect his boundaries, of course, but I'm shocked that he did not run this by me. He just decided that that's what our relationship was going to be from here on out. So admittedly, I, I was, I was furious, you know, I got upset. So the other day I sat him down and we, and we talked it out. And I, I asked, you know, is there is there any way that we could think about this before we decide to have a celibate relationship, especially considering that I have moved in with him. We have merged, you know, our finances. We are cohabitating. And essentially, you know, for all intents and purposes of the Christian belief system, we're living in sin. And I, I asked him, how, how can we sleep in bed every night? and not have sex. I, I just, I wish you had, had decided this before we chose to live together. Living with a man in a sexless relationship uh, is not something that I signed up for. And I'm not sure where this came from. We're both religious, but not fanatically religious. He is not willing to work things out with me. He has just told me he is, will be celibate from here on out. So I'm, I'm completely lost. Unmerge your finances, move the fuck out. He doesn't get to unilaterally determine the form and shape of your relationship. He needs your consent to remain in this relationship. And he kind of boxed you in or stopped boxing you in under false pretenses. And you are free to go and learn the lesson from this relationship. Moving in together under a year, I can see that. I can get behind that. Merged finances. In a year or less? No, that makes you vulnerable, makes anyone vulnerable to this kind of unilateral move by someone that you actually don't know that well. You know pretty well, you're pretty sure of them at a year, but you don't know in that transparent 360 degree way yet. And they can make this unilateral move because you're now you're vulnerable because now it's harder to walk away. And so you're less likely to bolt, more likely to want to hang around and work on it or think about compounding the error you've already made by marrying this piece of shit so you can start getting fucked again. You can start getting fucked again by someone else just to, well, actually, you don't even have to wait until you move out. You can start getting fucked again by somebody else tonight. But unmerge your finances right fucking now. Start looking for an apartment or a room in somebody else's house or apartment and get the fuck away from this guy. He isn't who you thought he was and he isn't who he led you to believe he was. And you made a commitment to the guy you thought he was. He ain't that guy. You are released from this commitment. Hey, Dan, I am a straight woman living on the East coast on your podcast. Bathhouse has come up so many times and I'm <laughs> so curious how the heck these things work and are they legal and what happens when you go there and why are there not straight houses that I know of. I'm just completely fascinated by the whole process and would love to understand it. A bathhouse is a whorehouse 
staffed by volunteers. And there's no parallel, as I like to say, in straight land. And why is that? Is it because gay people, gay men are such appalling sluts? No, it's because gay men are men. Straight men would do everything that gay men do if straight men could, but straight men can't because women won't. And why don't women want to have impulsive sex, anonymous sex with strangers? We now know it's not because women are more naturally monogamous, require intimacy. It's because women are controlling for violence. Women are not as free to be sexual with new people maybe even with anonymous partners, as many men feel themselves free to be. Not every man is interested in anonymous sex, although gay men have the option of going to bathhouses. Not all gay men do, but enough gay men do to create a market for bathhouses to fill them. And women, although just as interested in sex, just as horny, just as interested if you control for safety uh, in anonymous sex as men are, yeah, slut-shaming, violence, the risk of disease and pregnancy, which falls disproportionately onto the shoulders of women. Yeah, all of that is going to keep women out of bathhouses. Bathhouses also exist in a sort of cultural milieu uh, that was specific to the gay experience for most of recorded human history. It wasn't possible to be out and gay. And societies, knowing that gay people existed, created little spaces – where gay people could let off some steam and soak in some steam and fuck each other anonymously. And the deal was here in this park under these bushes in the middle of the night, here in this maybe this tiny little neighborhood, here in the back rooms of these gay bars or here in these bathhouses, you can do your dirty gay sex thing. Just don't ever tell me that you're gay. Don't tell your employer that you're gay. Don't tell your parents or family you're gay. Don't let your landlord know you're gay. Hide it. Pretend to be straight in public and we will allow for this tiny little space where you can do that horrible gay thing if that helps you to stay closeted and so we don't have to think about your existence. That was the deal the culture made us. So gay people needed these spaces and inhabited these spaces and they became a part of gay culture. And while they're no longer crucial, they're no longer the only place gay people can get it on, it's still a place that many gay people do like to get it on. I remember reading once a book, I believe it was Dry Bones Breathe by a gay sociologist and researcher, Eric Rofus, who compared the enduring appeal of anonymous sex, which used to be the only kind of sex that we could risk having, to soul food or the blues, which were forms of cultural expression shaped by oppression, really forged in oppression, but that had value to the communities that created them and so persisted. So yeah, in answer to your question, why aren't there bathhouses for straight people? There are. They're whorehouses, but they aren't staffed by volunteers. That is the difference between a bathhouse and a whorehouse. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old straight cisgendered woman calling from the Pacific Northwest. I have a bit of a doozy for you. So I've been talking to this guy and we went on a date and he's amazing. Like as soon as we started talking, I was like, holy shit, is this the man I'm going to marry? Like I've never had that feeling before in my life. The conversation's amazing. He's intelligent. He's thoughtful. He's conscientious everything that I've ever wanted in a person. And I learned something about him that he is framed as a very big secret of his. And that created a little bit of uncertainty for him in our relationship. It's literally been like a couple of weeks. Like this is a very new person, but it all just feels like very big, I guess, right now. He told me that he, under the influence of some 
prescribed drugs that he does not take anymore and that were part of a larger issue that he was going through at the time, became a little bit addicted to pornography. And in the course of that, downloaded a bundle of porn that included child pornography that he did not know was there. And he told me that he was arrested and went to prison for two years. This was a shock to me. (laughs) I can imagine it it would be to anyone that found something like that out about someone that seems so amazing. And the weird part is, I don't know if it's a deal breaker for me. I find myself really worried, though, about what it'll mean for the people in my life. Like, is this the kind of thing you tell your family members or do you only tell the people that, you know, can hang and like get it and like are not judgmental? I'm not a judgmental person and I'm I'm asking more questions to learn more about it and it doesn't feel like it's a deal breaker like especially considering how he talks about it and what he's learned from it and things like that and he's absolutely put to rest any fears that I had around like attraction to children or pedophilia or anything like that and I trust him in those answers but this is just so off the beaten path for me and I could really use your perspective Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Maddie Corman. She's a film, television, and stage actress, and she wrote and stars in the new one-woman play Accidentally Brave, uh, which is running right now at the DR2 Theater in New York City. Hey, Maddie, how are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. I didn't invite you on at random. Accidentally Brave is a play about, actually, would you be willing to describe it? Sure. Um... I mean, I wrote the damn thing. I should be able to describe it. But um, let me see how I would describe it. Well, a few years ago, after having a very nice, slightly suburban existence, I was on my way to work. I'm an actress, like you said, and I was driving to do a guest spot in Brooklyn. I lived in Westchester with my husband of 20 years and my three kids. And um, I got a call from my daughter screaming, saying the police were at my house. And long story, terrifying story short, my husband was arrested on charges of downloading child pornography. And my world, our world, just turned upside down, shattered, got exploded, all the things. And the play is kind of my, I can't really tell my husband's story. I can't tell my kid's story, but this was coming up on four years ago and kind of how our family, but specifically me, got back up off of the floor, metaphoric and literal when this happened. And it's hilarious. No, I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> it, but it is, it is, it's a lot of things, you know, it's, it's not just, obviously that's the, the big sensational salacious headline story and spoiler is that I am still with my husband. We are together. And that is a big question that a lot of people have. But in the play, it's not just about that topic. It's about what happens when someone you thought you knew really, really well and loved really, really hard has a secret. In in my case, I believe an addiction that went really, really south. So the the caller, and thank you for being willing to come on the show and share your experience and your very unique perspective with, with my caller. This isn't happening to her, you know, 20 years and, and three kids in. No, She, she went on not. one date. Yeah. 
I give her a ton of credit, first of all, for even having the open-mindedness and thoughtfulness to look at this because I don't know. I don't know what I would have done if I had had one date. You know, I had 20 years and three kids and um, a deep love for someone. So I just give her a, a, I think she's kind of amazing already. And I have a lot of thoughts about her situation. Go. Did I share share, share your thoughts? Yes, please. (laughs) Okay. That's why I'm here. Well, first of all, I think it's always interesting to know a human being versus a charge or a headline. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she said, this guy is great, he's terrific, he's evolved, he's sensitive, that resonates with me. That's my experience of loving someone um, who does something kind of unthinkable and considered bad. So there's a couple of things. Obviously, I don't know all the details, but from what I heard, what I what I liked, what I heard is that this guy was willing to be honest. And in my experience, again, secrets and shame can really just lead to no place good. Um, so it must be really hard for this man to have to share this. So I give him credit for not letting it go further before he shared this and letting her have her own feelings about it and do her own work on it. I can also say that her fear about what other people think is something that I've really had to just let go. At the end of the day, what I think and feel and what my kids think and feel is important. If we don't talk about things like this, then other people will have certain thoughts. There are certain misconceptions about people who view this kind of pornography. Um, and sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not. It's, it's individual. In my experience, I believe that there is such a thing as pornography addiction. Her boyfriend seemed to identify himself as a porn addict. That's where I, what I want to talk about. That's <clears throat> for me, if someone says they're a little bit of a porn addict, it's kind of like saying they're a little bit of a heroin addict. I believe that it's a real addiction and like any addiction, you need to work on it. For me, if my partner said, you know what? I made a mistake. I accidentally crossed the line. I'm not going to do it again. That's not true for me. And I would be worried about being with that person. I was a little concerned with what the woman said, you know, how she described him talking about it, because everything that he seemed to say to her about it kind of relieved him of any responsibility. He was under the influence of prescribed drugs, became addicted to pornography, downloaded a bunch of porn, and this came bundled with it, but he never seemed right. didn't seem to know it was there, didn't want to access it, and went to prison for two years. Is he taking responsibility for his actions? Now, I mean, first of all, he went to prison for two years. So to me, that's doing some time for a crime, and that's a certain level of responsibility. But I think, again, in my experience, it's a continuing process. And yes, there's responsibility, which is child pornography has victims, not just the person who goes to jail, obviously, and their potentially devastated family. I don't look at myself as a victim. I look at myself, uh, the girls, or, you know, I don't know what he looked at, but the young people on the videos are victims. That is Mm -hmm. absolutely true. And my partner does take responsibility as best he can um, for that. I make a distinction. Not everybody does. I make a distinction between what you watch and what you do. I think that people can have fantasies and 
look at things that they don't necessarily want to do. So I believe that when, when she says, you know, I believe that he doesn't have an attraction to children. I believe that. But I think that any kind of addiction needs to be addressed daily. Mm-hmm. Also, this guy is on his second date telling her this. So we don't know if maybe he's trying to ease into it. I don't know. But those are things way more than what other people think. I would be concerned about what is he doing to make sure this doesn't happen again? What is he doing to look at a part of him? Even if we take out the illegal pornography part of it, which I know some people can't separate, but even if we look at, in my case, that was a very, 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 very small part of my husband's addiction. In my case, now there's no pornography. You know, there's no, a lot of things. There's sobriety from sex addiction, porn addiction. And I don't know what that looks like for him or for her, but that would be something I think looking at it as, oh, a drug made me do this is a, is a potentially slippery slope. But isn't saying, oh, porn made me do this a a similar slippery slope? That porn made me do it. Like, like I was here and then I pressed that button and that button. Right. I, I got addicted to pornography. Pornography is so powerful. I wound up in these dark corners uh, of, you know, available online pornography, looking at online pornography that was illegal, but not because I had any desire, just because I was dragged into that corner by the power of porn. And it it can't be that everyone who's looking at child porn has no interest in children. Right, right. And everyone's just swept away by a tsunami of pornography. Yes, I agree with you. But I think there are definitely a lot of people who are looking at things that they don't actually want to do in the world of pornography. I absolutely agree that that's true. And there are people out there who can make a distinction between actions and thoughts and desires and behaviors. And recognizing, of course, always that child porn has victims, whether or not the person looking at it ever personally touched a child. Creating that updraft, that demand, results in more children being exploited and harmed. Absolutely. And everyone who downloads or views child porn or shares child porn is complicit in that harm and participates in that harm. So, so I want to give credit that there, you know, I talk about this all the time. There are people who are pedophiles and there are people who are child molesters. Not every pedophile is a child molester. Not every child molester is a pedophile. And we should give credit right. to people who don't act on desires that cannot be acted on consensually. And that those desires don't always involve children either. There are people with desires that Absolutely. can't be fulfilled consensually that involve other adults. Or And that's a lot animals. of pornography. I mean, and I'm not a huge porn fan, but a lot of pornography is, and I don't want to sound like I'm making an excuse, but a lot of pornography involves even scenarios that might not be consensual. I mean, I would argue that a lot of pornography involves scenarios that are not consensual. Right. Absolutely. It involves scenarios that aren't consensual, usually with the understanding that this is a fictitious portrayal of something. You know, we all sit yeah. and watch Game of Thrones, which portrays sexual violence. Uh, right. It's that when we sexual violence is portrayed, and it's titillating, and a lot of people watch it because it's titillating. It's when sexual violence is specifically marketed to us as pornography for our arousal and pleasure that suddenly we have these, you know, I think legitimately raise these concerns about who's viewing it, why it's yeah. being viewed, how it's being produced, and for whom. Right, because then the question becomes just a personal thing is when someone has done something, do we throw them away? And can you give someone, especially if it happened a while ago and a person has done the work and made amends and paid 
um, a debt to society, but also continues to work on. Like I said, I, I, I just think if you have a part of you that becomes addicted to something, are you looking at that? And I'm not even talking about, in my experience, sex addiction isn't even always about sex. Mm-hmm. It's about um, intimacy. It's about loss. It's about potentially abuse when people were young. It's about loss of control. Like, what is it in you? If you identify as a porn addict, what is it that led you there? And I personally think saying a drug led me there is a dangerous place to go versus I had some real things going on that I had to look at and deal with and address. And, and, that, that and that's what is, concerns me about the caller's description of this guy right. she's only been on one date with about how he frames what happened in his past as he seems to be absolving right. himself of all responsibility, which makes me feel like he hasn't really held himself accountable. I think it's really moving um, and important that, that you're out there talking about how you are still with your husband, still married, because one of the things that helps people who have these sorts of issues, whether you understand it as porn addiction or whether it's desires that that can't be acted on in any consensual fashion is they need people in their lives to love them and hold them accountable. And so it's not help. If you want the world to be safer for children, it it shouldn't be. We should walk away from everybody who has a problematic desire or has ever gotten in trouble for a problematic desire or behavior or action because that isolates those people and absent accountability, absent love and support from someone, they're more likely to offend in the future, not less likely to offend in the future. So to be part of holding someone accountable, to love someone through their crisis, through their flaws, through this process of them holding themselves accountable and facing up to their shit, whatever it is, I think that's hugely important. And I'm really glad that you're talking about this publicly because we don't hear from people in your shoes very often. Well, and I will say as someone who's done that and then talked about it publicly because, you know, she has the choice if she stays with him, who she tells and who she doesn't tell. You know, that choice was taken away from me um, because my story was in the newspaper moments after my husband was arrested. So what I have learned because of that, not having the choice to go, okay, let me see who I think would be cool with this and who wouldn't, is that people are amazing. And yes, there are many people who are so horrified and scared of this particular charge that they don't want to hear the nuance. They don't want to hear anything other than that is unacceptable. But there are so many people, and maybe in my case, because my husband had many, many years of life on this planet and being a good person to other people, that there were people who were really surprisingly open to and understanding. So yes, I agree with all the things you're saying, but I also think it just means there needs to be more conversation, not just, okay, but you're not taking accountability. And yeah, I think it's important to take accountability. I get a little bit of a red flag when he says it just showed up. Um, But I also do know, but I also do know that sometimes people get sent things that they might not have intended, but there's something there, you know, you're looking for something usually, you know, there are amazing therapists that work with people with all kinds of problems sexually. I'm sure you talk about it on your show, but they're called CSATs. And I think it's worth potentially having an appointment, maybe an mm-hmm. appointment with him, if this is something that she really, somebody she really cares about and really finding out. I wonder though if at. this is someone she really cares about, considering that only the relationship consists of 
a few phone conversations in one face-to-face date. And I I hate to put it this way because it does put you on the spot. But if this was something that you found out about your husband after your first date, would he have become your husband or would you have walked? You know, first of all, I wish. I mean, I wish that I had had any kind of knowledge and that I had been able to have that kind of, I don't, and I don't know the answer because I know a lot of people judge me. Um, believe me, a lot of people say I would never have stayed with my husband even after 20 years, even after three kids, even after the work that he's done to prove that this is not, you know, even after gaining the knowledge that he never had any contact, I would never. And I can't, I can't say that anymore, mm-hmm. Dan, because I would tell you that if you had said to me, this was going to happen five years ago, I might have said, well, then I would leave. You know, you just don't know until you know. Um, And you just don't know until you're in it. For me, you know, a lot of people say, what was the moment? And it wasn't a moment. This has been years post of really hard work. And there are days that I still go, wait, what? So it's not an easy thing, but I also don't think it's black and white, even for her even for her to be able to at least hear that there are good people who do bad things and that there's a chance that someone can, I mean, in my experience too, some of the people I know that are not, not for this particular part of sex addiction, but I know some sex addicts who've done some pretty unspeakable things who are amazingly sensitive, incredible people because they've done the work because either they got caught doing something or they went and got help. So I would rather be with someone who's gotten help and is looking at themselves than with someone who is pretending to be perfect. So bringing it back to this caller, if she wants to continue to see this guy, we could get behind that, but she needs to continue to scrutinize him or begin scrutinizing him to make sure that he's doing the work, that he's holding himself accountable and that the story adds up. Yes. More details, more conversation. I would certainly suggest she do her own reading and research. And yeah, it's making a decision because I don't know also what his legal standing is now. I don't know what kind of things he may or may not be allowed to do. And that affects a relationship. But I think it's amazing that she's willing to be open to looking at at it from a, a different angle. And I think that nobody talks about this. It's, it seems so crazy and taboo, and it's a big headline when someone gets arrested. I can tell you, because my story's out there, especially now doing the show, I hear from people like your caller every day. Every day. There are a lot of people who have been arrested for this or who have served time or are serving time. It is not as unique an experience as I thought it was because I didn't know anybody and I didn't have anybody to talk to. And that's the other thing. I hope that if she does choose to stay with him and he is getting the kind of support and help and that he needs that she has some support that she may need because it's, it's scary to be with somebody for any reason who people are judging and who did something that you don't think that's the other thing you know i don't think what my husband did was okay and i'm still with him so it's complicated 
If you've watched television or gone to a movie at any point in the last 20 years, you've seen Maddie Corman and Nurse Jackie, <laughs> some kind of wonderful, younger, high-maintenance girls, curb your enthusiasm. She's also starred on and off Broadway in her new one-woman show, Accidentally Brave, runs through July 14th at DR2 Theater in New York City. Maddie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Oh, gosh, it. I hope I made some sense. It was really nice to speak to you. Hi, Dan. Um, this is a 22-year-old bisexual cisgendered female from the East Coast. Um, I actually just had a question about um, my best friend. Uh, she was my college roommate for four years. We spent four years of our college career best friends. Like, we did all that stuff with the parties. We shared, like, stories about our boyfriend. And we basically shared everything together. Um, she's since moved about four or five hours away for a job after graduating and a little bit into our junior year of college, which would be two years ago from today, she started dating this guy from her hometown that was in the military. They were in a long-distance relationship, and they've been in a long-distance relationship since. Um, they've never formally, like, dated in person. Like, they only get to visit each other every so often because he's very active at whatever placement he's in. Who knows? So maybe, Max, they spend about two weeks together. Um, so it's fairly long distance. And when she was home with us, before she moved, she had all these friends, and she was able to do things, um, but we had noticed that he was getting pretty controlling. He would ask her questions like, what was she wearing, and why was she dressed like a slut when she went out, and stuff like that. Um, and she would tell us these things in passing, but would act like they were a joke. And again, we didn't really know him that well. We just knew them because they she would FaceTime all the time. He came to visit a couple times and would get really possessive over her at bars and everything like that, so it was just a very messy situation. Um, fast forward to now, they are engaged. Um, it happened way quicker than anybody thought it was, anybody in my friend group. And we are really, really positive that he is still acting in the same shitty ways as he's always been. Um, he's really controlling. He's like looked at their phone records, like they have a shared phone account. He's looked at her phone records before and like yelled at her for talking to people that he doesn't know. And is just super possessive. And we hate him, the entire friend group. And I'm pretty sure she knows that we don't like him, but we've never had a full conversation about it just because we're too scared to push her away. We're kind of scared that if we push her away and they end up getting married and he ends up treating her like a piece of shit, that he might get violent and she might get scared and not reach out. But it's kind of really hard to bring that up now um, because they're engaged and we spoke up too late. So I just want to know what your opinions are and like what we should say to her. Uh, she's also talked about being interested as a joke talking to other boys and needing attention from other people because she lives by herself and it's kind of really hard not to feed into it get her mind off of her fiance and maybe get her to consider that he should break up or she should break up with him or break off the marriage so what are your thoughts now is the time to speak up they are engaged they are not married go to your friend and tell her that all of these behaviors that he's been engaging in the entire time they've been together are controlling, they're isolating her over time. It's the red flag. It's the May Day Parade of the abuser. And you should tell her that. And if she walks away from your friend group and further isolates herself and clings to this guy, well, you did what you could. And you're worried then that if the relationship becomes violently abusive, it's already abusive by my measure, but if it becomes violent, if he becomes violent, that she won't reach out to you. That's always a risk. She may be too embarrassed to reach out to you. She may hesitate to reach out to you because she doesn't want to have to admit that you guys were right all along. But that's just the risk you're going to have to run. When you have your confrontation, when you have your come to Jesus with her, tell her. 
that she can always reach out to you, even if she decides to marry this piece of shit against the advice of every single person in her friend group, you will still be there for her when she decides to get the fuck away from this controlling, monstrous piece of shit. Might help if you booked a session with a couple of couples counselors or even one couples counselor who can walk her through why this is a problem. Sometimes people who have a hard time hearing what their friends have to say have an easier time hearing it and understanding it if it comes from an authority figure, even if it's an authority figure that their friends booked a 90-minute session with, and help her see the May Day Parade of red flags for exactly what it is. Hi, Dan. I'm calling on behalf of a friend. I am a gay male. He is a straight male, and he is getting into kink and BDSM, and I'm usually, I listen to your show a lot, so I'm pretty familiar with all of this stuff, and he likes to confide in me a lot. Well, recently he's been talking with a girl who identifies as a lesbian, and I think for her, she was trying to experiment with him as a bottom or a sub, and I feel like he's getting very um, obsessive over her, and he likes her a lot, and he wants to text her all the time. And I try to tell him, like, look, she's a lesbian, kind of give her her space and let her come to you if she's going to be interested in this. But I could see that he's always trying to push to want to text her, to call her. And she even tells him, like, give me, you know, a week or something like that to, you know, before she wants to get with him or talk to him again. And so I don't know what I can tell him or how I can advise him, because I guess I'm like his sexual advisor on how to kind of just take it slow with this girl because I feel like she's kind of blowing him off. Again, she is a lesbian and he really is getting really into her and he's always wanting to text her and I'm just like, I don't know how to advise him of this, so I would really love your help. On the one hand, if he comes on this strongly, you're right. This woman is going to bolt and cut him off. On the other hand, she probably needs to cut him off. So if he's going to come on this strongly, he's going to learn a valuable lesson, which is coming on this strongly early in a relationship, particularly when what's on offer is very limited in scope, is going to cost you in BDSM kinkland play opportunities with people you might otherwise want to play with because people aren't going to want to play with you. If you can't self-regulate, if you get out over your skis, and this just doesn't apply only to BDSM and kink, friends with benefits, fuck buddies. If you make somebody a limited sort of contained offer for some sexual play or interaction and they just bury you in an avalanche of emails and texts and hopes and wishes and dreams and desires, you're going to cut that person off. And it might be a valuable life lesson for him to get cut off so he knows that in the future, if he doesn't want to deprive himself of these kinds of play opportunities with people who might otherwise not be interested in him at all because he's a straight guy, she's a lesbian, maybe there are certain BDSM things she enjoys doing with men, but she certainly is interested in having a relationship with him, a romantic relationship with all the obligations that comes bundled with those, the expectations that come bundled with those. Anyway, where was I? She's going to tell him to fuck off and go away. You can warn him in advance that that is the likeliest outcome here. She is going to tell you to fuck off and go away, dude. And then when she does, if your intervention doesn't prevent him from burying this poor woman in texts and messages and asks and requests and she cuts him off, you can look at him and say, 
I told you so. I warned you. Learn the lesson here and don't make this same mistake next time someone expresses a limited amount of interest in you as an occasional play partner. Hi, Dan. I'm a uh, white male from Canada. I'm a bisexual or identify as bisexual and I have a history of sleeping with both men and women and being romantically involved with both men and women. Over the last couple of years, you know, I met a woman who I fell wildly in love with and I've since married. She has several friends who are members of the LGBT community, predominantly lesbian women and gay men. And periodically they raise, you know, anti-bisexual sentiments in casual conversation or when we're talking about politics or sex or sexuality. And I feel really uncomfortable about this. A, because it feels like it's impinging upon my own identity and my own sexual history, but also because I'm not sure how I can push back. They've only ever known me as like a heterosexual person because I've only ever been in this heterosexual heterosexual relationship when I've been around them. So it feels really uncomfortable for me as this perceived heterosexual to push back and say that they're mischaracterizing my identity and mischaracterizing the B in the LGBT community because they're out loud and proud lesbian, gay men and women. And I feel like I don't have to face the same oppressions every day that they do because I am in this heterosexual relationship or at least perceived to be heterosexual relationship. I'm really struggling to juggle kind of my identity and sort of this anti-bisexual bias that I see cropping up periodically. How should I navigate this? So your wife's gay and lesbian friends, they're out loud and proud and misinformed and you're sitting there closeted and quiet and complicit in your own abuse. Yes, they are assuming you're straight because you're in an opposite sex relationship. That is an assumption that people shouldn't make, but that is an assumption that most people will make because it's going to be correct 90 plus percent of the time. So it falls into the category of reasonable, if not 100% accurate assumptions. And when people make those sorts of assumptions about us that are reasonable and not malicious, it's on us to speak the fuck up. Dude, you say you identify as bisexual, but nobody knows. Or, or your friends, your wife's friends, these people, your intimates, they don't know how you identify. And maybe you don't feel safe coming out to them. But you know what? The world would not have changed for any sexual minorities if we didn't start coming out to people that it didn't feel safe to come out to. And the stakes of coming out when you're talking about your wife's dumbass gay and lesbian friends are pretty fucking low. They can't throw you out of the house. They can't throw you out of the church. They can't deny you access to anything. You're just going to have to face down an awkward moment where they realize they've been saying stupid, ignorant, ill-informed things in front of you. And the assumption that you're straight and you agree with them. And by sitting there silently... You're kind of reinforcing their bigoted attitudes. And by sitting there silently, you are complicit in your own oppression and the continued oppression of other bisexual people by even other sexual minorities. Speak the fuck up already. Your wife's not going to divorce you if you come out as bi because she knows you're bi. And you may end up having an awkward heart-to-heart conversation with some of these friends where you have to explain bi 101 to them. That's something that we have to do when we come out to people. I had to explain a lot of gay 101 to my family, my huge extended family, to a lot of my friends decades ago who'd never met a gay person before. If I could do it, then you can do it now. 
So the next time one of your wife's gay or lesbian friends says something stupid or ignorant or straight friends, straight people also say stupid and ignorant things about bisexual people all the time. The next time this happens and you're sitting there, say, hey, uh, guys, I've been in relationships with men and with women. I am bisexual and you don't know what you're talking about. You want to talk with me more about it? I'd be happy to talk with you more about it. Or, hey, you could go home and Google this shit. And learn something. And you have a right to be angry at that moment. Go ahead. Let yourself be pissed off. And if it's awkward, if it's uncomfortable, good. They've been making you feel awkward and uncomfortable for years. Time to turn the tables. Before we get to your response calls, let's do the tweets. Scott Heisel tweets, I love Dan Savage, but I have to take him to task for his sketchy math on the opening of this week's Savage Lovecast. 3.3% is not triple 1.8%. It's literally not even double. Scott is referring to a stat I cited a few weeks ago showing, according to the General Social Survey, that the numbers of Americans who identify as bisexual have tripled in the last 10 years. I said it went from 1.8 to 3.3%. That is, as Scott points out, not tripling. Here's where I screwed up. It wasn't my math. It was my transcription. It went from 1.1% to 3.3%. If I were better at math, I would have caught that as it came out of my mouth, but I am not good at math. So thank you to Scott and everybody else out there who caught it for me. Blue Monker tweets, it took me a couple of years, but I am all caught up on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast. It is my most listened to podcast at 20 days. Thank you, fake Dan Savage, for all the advice, laughter, and heartache. Can't wait for another 600 plus shows. You're welcome, Blue Monker. Hope you enjoy the next 600 as much as you enjoyed the last 600. And finally, Matcha tweets, Dan, the reason why many men think they can convert lesbians isn't because some lesbian-identified women occasionally like to get with men. It's because men don't respect women. This is turning some lesbians against each other, but men are to blame. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Men are to blame. That is an evergreen tweet. Thank you very much, Matcha, for your comment. If you want us to read one of your tweets on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, response calls. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I just listened to the caller who called in about uh, his older friend sharing fries. I am that friend. I And you're absolutely right with your advice, Dan. You hit the nail on the head. I am that friend because I'm poor as fuck. When I go out to eat with my friends, I don't have enough money to A, share my food, or B, buy the next round of drinks at a bar. So yeah, dude, like back the fuck off. It's none of your business. If it's really a concern, then you can bring it up to her in private in the nicest way possible. But I would just suggest backing the fuck off. Hey, Dan, I'm a 36-year-old woman in Seattle, and I am calling about the woman with incurable cancer who was on your last show, 655. I am also a woman with incurable cancer, and I think she had a good question. You had a good answer. But I really don't like it when people... Uh, do the I hope you overcome nature or things flip upside down for you. It's really hard to hear that over and over, especially when we are doing pretty well and, you know, recognize that our mortality is approaching, but we're still enjoying life. So if you could just acknowledge that it sucks, but I hope she's doing well otherwise, that's a lot better than wishing that uh, the impossible happens. This is response to a caller that called about the girl that wanted to bring her bodyguard or friend on the date with them. Dude, 
I think you need to get over it. Uh, like Dan said, like you've been on 25 dates. You should be able to gauge if this is a common thing. And if it's the first time you've encountered it, then it's obviously not an issue. And you're just thinking way too far into it. I have girlfriends that always tag along on their friend's first date, especially Tinder, because they want their friend's opinion on the person. And if you're having a good time when y'all get there, the friend can take a hint and get lost. It's really not that difficult. She obviously made the right decision not to go out with you because you're being a fucking dick about it. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. We are wrapping up the spring tour for my Dirty Little Film Festival, Hump. And this week, for the final stops until fall, we will be in Montreal and Toronto. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets. And I will be at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco with the one and only Stormy Daniels on June 7th for Savage Love Live. Rachel Lark will also be joining us. Head to savagelovecast.com slash events for details and tickets. And the Savage Love Live tour is coming to Minneapolis, Chicago, Madison, Boston in the fall. Again, you can get those tickets and find out the exact dates at savagelovecast.com slash events. And we are going to do a one-minute wonder show. It's been so long that a lot of you may not even know what a one-minute wonder show is. That's where the questions have to be a minute or less, and my responses have to be two minutes or less. If you'd like to be a part of the one-minute wonder show, call us, 206-302-2064. The real question, of course, is whether I can ever answer a question in under two minutes, and we will find out on the one-minute wonder show. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Maddie Corman on Twitter at Maddie Corman. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.